Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. On the show this week is Brian Zwerner, the president and founder of We Studio and a VC and founder of Beyond the Game Network. A guy called Tim Dore, the MD of Techstars in Atlanta, thoughtfully introduced me to Brian last year. And after an intro chat, Brian kindly jumped in to mentor the founders in the Techstars Web3 program that I run. As the president and founder of We Studio, a US 501c3 nonprofit venture studio, Brian and his team helped diverse founders in Atlanta build startups in Web3. We Studio partners with corporations and provides grants to startups to fund the launch of their first products. With his role as a VC and founder at Beyond the Game Network, Brian teams up with a venture group of athletes that invest in seed to Series B consumer startups in sports, media, Web3, and fitness. In this episode, Brian and I riff on what led him to scratch his entrepreneurial itch in the first place back in 2014, his experiences as a founder, and the symmetry of his leadership across Beyond the Game Network and Wii Studio. We also take a look at the market for sports-themed digital collectibles since the 2020-2021 bull run, and how his advice to founders has evolved with the comings and goings of bulls and bears. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Listen, it was it was Tim Dore from Techstars Atlanta that connected us. And that was back in February 2023. And then you came in, you mentored for Techstars Web3, and we were off to the races. So it's great to finally have this chat with you on air, Brian. And thank you for joining. It's awesome. Absolutely, Pete. Looking forward to it and excited to talk to you today. Cool. And just kind of jumping right into your backstory, right? And that I, I had a look at that and I could see this clear trend line of moving from TradFi into startups and investing in 2014, much like me, right? That was it. And I got that itch and I just had to go. For me, it was going down the blockchain rabbit hole. But for you, what was that that pushed you in this direction towards startups? Yeah, you know, I spent the first 20 years of my career in large bank capital markets, sales and trading roles. You know, banks that are now today, Wells Fargo, Bank of America and JP Morgan in the U.S. and overseas for a bit. But I was always the intrapreneur guy. I was always the one going after the new markets, trying to figure out how we could build out a new product that we saw or one of our competitors doing or iterate on the existing products. I I invented a couple of products in the uh, interest rate swaps markets that are still being traded today, 25 years later. I was the first guy to, to trade them, to figure out how to structure those, figure out how to write the legal docs, to figure out how to hedge the risk. And, and they're still going strong 25 years later. And so I was always that guy. When, when I was at Bank of America, I think they told me I was the person who had been to the banks, like the entire bank, like the whole regional you know, community bank, the credit card group. I was the guy who'd been to the new product committee at the C-suite level of the bank the most times in my time there. So I always loved you know, kind of tinkering and trying new things. But I was in this big bank area, man, and I was making a lot of money and it was easy to just kind of stay in that. Then 2008 happened and I was working near the CDO business. I was in kind of structured credit, doing credit default swaps, not the stuff that blew up, but real, real close. My boss ran the CDO business at you know what is now Wells Fargo. And, and I took a big break. I was really burned out. I'd been traveling all over the world. I moved down to Atlanta where my wife's family was from. And ended up working at a small broker dealer down here for a few years, all the while thinking, man, I'd really like to start something on my own. And so ended up meeting a couple of guys who were running a finance company that had 
taken over another failed financial lender, uh, fintech lender. And we ended up cutting a deal where I came in to relaunch that thing. It was called Aquina Health Lent Money to doctors and dentists and home healthcare agencies. And we had built some really cool tech to read a medical practices, billing to Medicare and the health insurers and use that for underwriting and repayment. And I'm like, this sounds like a ton of fun. It's still sort of financial related. So it wasn't so far away from stuff I was familiar with, but it was close enough into the startup world. And it had the training wheels, Pete, you know, like I was doing it with some other guys who actually were running a business. So it was like, it had that feel of that entrepreneur thing that I was a little more comfortable with. So that was my first cut into to startup life. I was, it was me and Margaret. We had two people, but we had some folks around us in the office that were doing other things, which gave us a little bit more comfort, gave me a little more comfort to actually take the leap and start my first startup. That's great. And now that you mention it, my dad was one of the co-founders of a business called Fazzy Associates that were doing patient satisfaction for home healthcare agencies. And they also ended up doing insurance claim coding through a subsidiary that they set up outside of Limerick in Ireland. And does Fassi Associates ring a bell to you at all in terms of that journey? Because it was about that time back in 2014. They were probably 10 years before that. They started. We didn't work with them, but we had partnered with three of the five biggest medical practice management systems. So Every medical practice works with something called a PMS, a practice management system, or EHR, electronic health record system. And we had partnered with three of the four, three of the five biggest ones that had between them many millions of medical practices. And so we could tunnel in via API into their billing system and see all the claims submitted by a practice. We could see what they had submitted, how long it took what payout they got as a percentage of what they put in. So yeah, we were working with a lot of stuff like Fazzy, but I never bumped into them specifically. But it was a big part of kind of how we, you know, how we pushed the business, how we found our customers, how we underwrote and took repayment for what we did. We partnered with the largest payments processor in the medical space, a group called Payspan. Payspan processed the ACH payments for the 100 biggest medical payers in America, the insurance companies and the state Medicares and Medicaid's. So we were really tied into all that tech. It was a cool and fun business. It's still running today. We, I ran that for about three years, grew it up to about a dozen people and grew the loan book to hundreds of customers. And we sold a controlling interest to a larger finance company in 2017. So I had a, you know, kind of a partial exit there and decided that at that point I had, you know, I've got kids today who are in college and my kids then were in high school and playing a lot of sports. And I started, all right, well, I'm, I, I did the training wheel startup. I'm ready for the full show now. I want to be a solo founder. I don't want to answer to nobody. I was tired of having a co-founder. And I started a passion project called Sportal. Sportal was a high school sports media and tech company. We started with something called Sportal Space. It was an online gym and field rental program for practice and training for coaches in mostly in Atlanta here where I live. We got that up to about 100 different gyms and fields that you could rent. And we ran into a giant brick wall trying to deal with the schools and the school districts who control the vast majority of gyms and fields in any city in America. You know, we signed up about 100 churches and rec parks and fitness centers, but breaking into the school districts was awful. And Pete, what I learned is if I live to be 100 years old, I will never, ever try to sell anything to a school district ever again. I mean bureaucratic, resistant to change, anti-technology, no one's in charge, no financial motivation. I mean, they are the worst possible customer anyone could ever have. 
wow, you would have said definitely said no to one of the startups that we said no to recently. And yeah, I'm glad I didn't put that one in front of you. I don't begrudge anybody else trying to do it, but I'm not going near it, man. It (laughs) is, they are impossible. It's bad. Look, there've been some big businesses built selling to schools and governments and things, but I'm not doing it ever again. So we ended up pivoting the business. We became a media company covering high school sports here in Georgia, sent reporters and videographers in 2018 out to about 250 games. You know, somebody'd show up with an iPhone and they'd be videoing the clips of the game. And we built a really big social media platform. We ended up creating a live streaming business. We'd show up with a big giant 50 pound case of cameras and soundboards and all this. And we would uh, live stream the games on YouTube with a producer and a camera person, a play-by-play and color announcer. We did like 60 live streams. And we tried to build an ad supported media network. It was a fun and exciting time. Everybody loved us, but no one wanted to pay for anything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the schools, the parents, the coaches, the players, we were everybody's favorite, but there just weren't enough eyeballs to monetize with ads and we couldn't sell it to the schools or the, or the parents. After a year and a half of several pivots at Sportal, I shut that sucker down. But it was a great experience. I was the solo founder. I've, I angel funded the whole business for a year and a half. And I learned a ton. (laughs) Great. And then there was probably a few years in between that. And then just looking at where you are now, and I wanted to dig into Wii Studio and Beyond the Game Network. was Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you the bit of how we got to Beyond the Game. So I was working with all these media products around high school sports, and we ended up working with a bunch of former NFL players, American football players, who were helping us with the stuff we were doing with high school football. And, uh, you know, remember, this is 2018. Today, 2024, every athlete's a venture investor. They all are doing angel checks, right? But six years ago, there were like a couple dudes on the Warriors, and that was it. You know, it was Andre Iguodala, Steph Curry, and Kevin Durant, and nobody else. And so, you know, when we wrapped up that business, Sportal, my color commentator for high school football was a eight-year NFL veteran named Andre Fluellen. Flew had retired in 2016. He grew up here in Atlanta. He moved back here. And he was on the mic with me every Friday night. And when we shut the business down, he's like, hey, this is dope. We need to show my friends, you know, digital media, social streaming, tech, startups, venture. This is super cool. And so we launched a group, you know, off the back of Andre's idea called Beyond the Game Network. We initially thought it'd be a venture group or angel group with a bunch of athletes writing checks. And then I learned how little money most guys in the NFL make. Everybody sees the $50 million contract for Patrick Mahomes, but, you know, 90% of the NFL makes less than a million bucks a year and has a two-year or three-year career. So it became very clear that Andre's friends should not be investing in venture. So we ended up putting together a venture syndicate under the Beyond the Game brand with a bunch of my business finance and tech friends. And Andre brought in 30 of his former NFL and a couple other athletes from other sports. We spun that up at end of 2018, and we started investing in startups in early 2019. We focus on investing in D2C startups in the U.S. market that are doing entertainment and fitness. So we've written 25 checks, mostly seed and series A, sports, digital and social media, gaming and esports, sports betting and fantasy and consumer web three. That's all our entertainment bucket. And then the fitness we've done, connected devices, workout apps, human performance coaching in those areas. And then we bring these 30 NFL and, and a couple uh, WNBA players and Olympic track runner and all. We bring this whole crew of athletes to help with introductions to pro and college sports teams and leagues and media groups and players associations. 
we can get into a lot of hard to get to places with so many people on our athlete crew. And so that's what we've been doing for the last five years. That's the business that Andre and I have been running and, and that's got to be on the game. Very good. Very good. And then the last couple of years with We Studio and seeing the approach that you're taking with that. So diversity is important to me and I'll tell you why in a minute. But Please. it's clear that it's important to you and that from my time in the corporate world, way back when, up to what, 2015, 2016, that the team-based building of solutions, and I still see this now in my advisory and board roles, that building of solutions was always more interesting when it was with people from all different backgrounds and cultures. And it was just, and, and it's just something I've always aspired to be is someone who can influence and lead the formation of more diverse businesses, groups, you name it. And recently took a pledge with the Association of Women in Cryptocurrency not to participate in any mantles going forward. That's right? great. <laughs> and that is hard I, to do in the crypto space. <laughs> it is, but I've taken some heat for it. Just 90% of the commentary coming back on LinkedIn was positive, but one was clearly from someone who I know that gets paid to be on panels. Right. <laughs> so he's looking at this from a competitive standpoint. Right, saying, right. Self-interest is kicking in. <laughs> which, you know, and so, and then a friend of mine privately kind of said the same thing to me. And I'm like, dude, wake up. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. 2024. I mean, you know, for me, when I worked over, I was over in London in the trading space back in my trading days from, oh, you know, for three years. And, you know, when I worked over there, that was certainly the most diverse trading floor I'd ever seen. In the United States, most of the trading floors in the late 90s, 2000s were, you know, very male and white dominated. But, you know, I got over to Europe and we had, you know, incredible diversity. Even though we were Bank of America and we were clearly an American bank, you know, our coverage reflected our customer base. And I saw the power of that. And moving down to Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. It's nearly 50% black. And, you know, we worked with so many different types of people. And then, in my personal life, my son played like high level AAU basketball growing up and on teams where we would walk into gyms and there'd be two, 300 people and we were literally the only two white people in the entire gym. So I've been exposed to it in so many different ways. And, you know, when we got working with our athlete crew, all 30 of our athlete partners are black or women or both. And, and I think, you know, some combination of the sectors we invest in, the kind of deal flow we see from our athletes and our, you know, general just openness to it. Over half of our portfolio have, you know, diverse individuals or women in the founding team at Beyond the Game. And there's very few venture firms that could say that. And it's not like we set out to build it that way. That's just what we ended up with. We went for the best people that we could find, the best startups we could find, and we ended up with a very diverse portfolio. And as we got integrated into the Atlanta tech scene, I think Atlanta just has the most diversity of any city in America from a tech perspective and more black tech going on here than anywhere else. I walk into rooms in Atlanta, that looks so different than everything else that I've seen in any other city. And our athletes were really passionate about helping diverse founders here in Atlanta. So all the way back before we started We Studio five years ago, we've been running early stage mentorship programs for diverse founders. We were running content series to highlight diverse individuals. We had a whole article series called Rise Up, which was the Falcons, uh, the Atlanta Falcons slogan back then, where we were highlighting in an article series, different founders and in our newsletters that were diverse. And so we decided about a year and a half ago to formalize all that by setting up a separate entity. And all throughout that, we were seeing some of the really cool things happening in Web3. We've made like seven or eight investments in Web3 startups, a metaverse company, two in the metaverse space, a couple in the NFT space. And we thought, hey, let's take these things that we're interested in, helping diverse individuals and kind of the 
community-based concepts of Web3, and let's put them together into this new nonprofit that we call We Studio. It's written out as W3, but we pronounce it We Studio. And, you know, the initial idea was really to make it over time like a DAO-like structure built initially around our community pass NFTs and maybe in the future once the laws come clearer in the United States, hopefully a token, where the community will decide which startup founders we want to back and which ones we want to support and which programs we want to create and really kind of give that power to the community, embracing kind of the Web3 or DAO ethos and bringing that to Atlanta where there's really a great and growing Web3 presence. And so that's the concept behind We Studio. We took that, all that work we were doing in Beyond the Game that was just something that we were passionate and excited about, and we put it into a separate entity. We set it up as a U.S. corporation. We got a U.S. 501c3, the nonprofit status, so we can take tax-deductible donations from corporations and individuals. Uh, but we've still embraced this Web3, and we finally launched our NFT program about a month ago. So we have, you know, these community passes with this amazing generative art created by a, um, a black woman artist here in Atlanta called Ashley Bella. So those are for sale now. Come check them out on our Twitter. I will. No, I will check it out. Yeah, no, it works. And the we being representative of everybody is a really good connotation there as well. But just to kind of drive this point home that you've been referring to with We Studios, and i am just grabbed this quote off your website, Brian, and I'm going to read it out that you say, just like other technology markets, the early winners in Web3 have been almost exclusively men, typically white and Asian. We want to build a better future for the industry by supporting Black, Latinx, and women startup leaders. Access to friends and family capital is toughest for underrepresented founders, so we studio will fill this gap with our grant program. Additionally, we will bring vetted resources and members to help these startups win. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that encompasses everything we're trying to do here. You know, what we've found working with, especially diverse founders here in Atlanta, is that generally they just don't fit the VC pattern match. They didn't go to college at Stanford and Harvard. They didn't have their first jobs at Google and Meta and Apple. You know, they just don't hit those boxes that VCs are looking to check. They're awesome. They just don't hit those boxes. And so, and, the, and you know, by and large, it's unlikely they've got friends and family that are comfortable writing angel checks that have the funds to do it or around the tech industry and have done it before. And so there are a lot of great funds, VC funds here in Atlanta, that will write that seed check once you have a product and some customers and some revenue, but who helps people at that earliest of stage? And so that's really where we're trying to help. And so our ultimate goal is to try to get, you know, to the point where we've got a million dollar annual budget in this nonprofit and we can work with five or so founders a year and fund them with a couple hundred grand each, enough money to really get your product live and do it at that idea on a napkin stage, at the earliest of stages that no one else will touch and really deliver on our mission. We don't have the funding today for that mission. We've gotten some cash in and we've been able to give out some grants and we're proud of that. So we've started with a pre-accelerator incubator program called the Immutable Program. We do that in partnership with co-working and event space here called the Atlanta Blockchain Center. It's a co-working space during the day, event space at night. The founder of it is a guy named Marlon Williams who sits on the board of directors of We Studio. We've done four classes. We've had 20 companies, all diverse, all here in Atlanta, go through all Web3, go through the program over the last two years. And that's kind of our flagship program today as we work to prove out to potential donors and corporate sponsors that we can, you know, deliver on the studio part of our mission, hopefully next year. 
very good thinking about Techstars' role in this space as well, right? It was Jordan Flegel from Techstars Sports Indie and also Techstars New York City who suggested that I get in touch with you. And that was after the intro from Tim Dore. So we were already connected at that point. But in just getting to know Jordan and the investments that he's made and seeing some of the investments he's made in the NFT space for sports, that obviously we've seen a difficult trend in that market over the course of the past couple of years. And you and I had an email exchange about a month ago on the market for sports-themed digital collectibles. And I'll call them that because shout out to Laura Walsh, who's also one of our Techstars mentors, one of our Techstars All-Star mentors, just recently named, that you know she hates the term NFT and that it's just such a technical thing. <sighs> Sometimes it's most conveniently said because it's what people know that happen to be in this space, but we got to do better. And then not all NFTs are collectibles, right? They're for something else. And we've moved beyond them being collectibles and I and could go down a rabbit hole there, but I won't. Anyway, in that email exchange, you and I were talking about sports themed digital collectibles and market for those, particularly in the context of NBA Top Shot and Candy, the, the Major League Baseball segment that they have covered. And me, if you could see what's up on the wall there, and I brought this down when I was talking to a startup founder recently, my autographed picture of Ted Williams up on the wall that's has an authentication certificate on the back. Right. right. And we could put all of this into the non-fungible to token con context that I've all I've been an old school collector. I'm still an old school collector. If there was an opportunity to digitalize my entire collection of baseball cards and other memorabilia like that Ted Williams thing, even though I love looking at the picture up there so I could put them up for sale while also having my own digital view into the collection, which is a big thing for me because most of these are in my parents. All of nearly all of them are in my parents' basement back in Massachusetts. Okay. So even though the floor totally came out of the NFT market for sports NFTs, I still think there's a ton of value out there and some great solutions on a path to scaling. What's your view on this market and how has it changed? You know, what, where do you think this is going to go? Yeah. I mean, look, there's a, such a difficult backdrop because it's not just the NFT companies who made a lot of promises to sports teams and leagues and media partners and athletes. There were a lot of promises made. There were a lot of contracts signed. There were a lot of minimum guarantees that just aren't going to get filled because they're just no longer practical. So there's a lot of mistrust created from that. But it's not just that. Remember, the crypto companies came in super hard into media sponsorship as well. Right. And, you know, obviously FTX blew up, Binance has pulled back from the U.S. market. So there was this flood of cash that came into the sports industry, especially here in the United States, that has just completely come back out again. And, and that's created some real problems. And, you know, that was money that teams and leagues and athletes were depending on or expecting for. It's going to be hard to win back that trust. And, you know, flipping over to the buyer side, a whole lot of people bought stuff at the top. Uh, yeah. that is way underwater or worthless. And so you've got a lot of, you got a lot of trust to build back here. Now, the crypto overall macro market has seen this massive reflation, you know, with Bitcoin nearly tripling now from the bottom as of time of recording here. So that's going to help. That's going to help. I think there's a way back from this. I I'm with you. I think digital collectibles make all the sense in the world. For all the, you know, the reasons that you said and all the other reasons related to how we live our life more digitally and how much time we spend digitally and 
how much time we're going to spend on things like, you know, the Meta Quest and the Apple Vision Pro and everything else that's coming after that. So I think we're going to see a new move here. I think the people that'll be successful with it, though, will be less focused on both the tech, you know, this NFT concept and the way the tech is done and everything else. All of that's going to have to be obfuscated away. And it's going to have to be much more about collectors and not speculators. I'm guessing, but I'm guessing you bought that Ted Williams thing because you're a Boston Red Sox fan, not because you were really just excited that it was going to double in yeah. price maybe one day. Right? Yeah, it was a gift and from my dad, right? Of course, right? Not because your dad said, this was an awesome investment, son. No. We're going to fund it on this thing. But because you <laughs> love the Red Sox and, the, and he loved Ted Williams. And, and so we have to get away from this kind of tech-focused, speculation-focused and move into where it really matters, which is fandom. And this is, to me, where Top Shot just blew it. Right. I mean, they got to a billion dollars in cumulative primary sales. Do you know how cheap it is to buy a ticket to an Atlanta Hawks Tuesday night game in the upper deck? It's probably like $20. Top shot. Now that look, that's here. Okay. This is not the Lakers or Golden State or the Knicks or even the Heat. Okay, but whatever. Most NBA arenas, you can get a Tuesday or Thursday night ticket for 20 bucks. Wow. Okay. Upper deck, whatever. But like NBA Top Shot, Dapper Labs could have been showering their community with cheap tickets. I mean, showering yeah. them. Like, they could have been tickets for everyone, right? You collect 10 moments of your favorite team, here's a ticket. If they were too expensive, they could have done ticket lotteries, right? Maybe in the Knicks and the Lakers and Golden State where the tickets are 100 bucks just to get an upper deck. Fine. Every 10 moments you get, you're in a weekly lottery, and we'll give out tickets to, to less people. But, like... They should have been showering and they should have done fan meetups and pregame things and postgame. And they should have brought fans into the locker room. They had the ear and the eye of the NBA, the league. They had the, the teams cared. The players were caring. We had players who were collecting their own top shot and posting about it on social. And they blew it. They never connected that. They did a couple of small things. They could have literally showered their, the fan base with tickets at, at most cities in America for like a million dollars. They could have given out tens of thousands of tickets. It's crazy. It's crazy. They totally missed the, wow. the fandom part. And it would have been a, a drop in the bucket of where they were at the peak. I mean, just a oh, drop yeah. in the bucket. That's nuts because the, the $20, do you know how much I paid to bring my sons to a rugby match here in Ireland to see Leinster, one of the four teams here in Ireland, it's 25 euro. And that's for, right. that's for the cheap seats. Yeah. But, you know, a baseball I, I, again, game, like candy digital baseball, like go to a, a weeknight Braves game. I mean, you could easily get into those games during the regular season for 20 bucks. Now look, the NFL is more expensive. There's no $20 seats in the NFL, but even still, they could have done ticket lotteries. They could have made the, the level higher. You have to own a hundred moments to get at, to get a ticket once into the season. They never really connected it with the sport, the players, the things the fans cared about. They could have done deals where you get to go watch a practice or come to the practice yeah. facility. And there were so many things that they could have done. And that's the thing. When this gets going again, it's not going to be about NFT this and tech, blockchain that. It's going to be, here's a digital collectible that brings you closer to the thing you love. And if they, oh, yeah. if whoever gets that right, has got a huge opportunity in sports. It's hard. It's not going to be easy, but that's what's going to have to be done to see this thing work.
Oh yeah. I mean, I'm even seeing like Ticketmaster creep up the backside here in terms of, you know, I can now hold on my Ticketmaster app. I can see all the gigs that I went to. Yep. As I NFTs. See- I went to a concert with my wife two weeks ago and I got an email saying, claim your concert collectible. They didn't call it an NFT, but it was absolutely yep. an NFT on the blockchain. And yep. it's super and that, cool. And I'm excited and to have it in my wallet. And that's what's happening. I've talked to folks, I've, I've spoken with folks here in Ireland about, about the rugby side of things. And that, listen, you know, the fandom, as you said, is what the draw is here. And that people that are passionate about things and are willing to spend money on things. In the rugby, music industry, it's going to be the exact same thing. You'll collect tickets from your favorite artists that you went to their shows. And now you're going to get the right to be the first person to buy tickets when they come back to your city. Or you're going to get to hear their music a week before it drops. Or you're going to get to jump on a Zoom call with that music artist and hear them talking about the the process of writing those songs and recording those songs or something else. And so like all they need, you know, all that's what's going to get unlocked and what and the power of the blockchain, Web3, crypto tech in this is going to be tracking you, proving verifiably on chain that you're you. And you went to those games or you went to those concerts or you did that interaction. You went to that show, whatever it is. And that's where the really exciting stuff's going to get built in this next run up. One of the ideas that was proposed on the side of the pond, Brian, was to have that collectible you, that almost self-sovereign ID that is your fandom that keeps track of you went to these 10, 15, 20 different games and that because of that, you're now in the inner circle, you get invited to the VIP box, whatever, like you're saying, free tickets to games, other types of collectibles, jerseys, helmets, you name it. And that if you were to then leave that city, which would never make sense to me, if you're to leave that city and you're not going to games anymore, that you can sell that on, right? Yeah, because for it, sure. So it's not really a self-sovereign ID. It's just a fan ID that you can then, you can sell those rights on to somebody else. And again, I think that is a small use case because it's, to me, it's about, it, it, it's great trying to monetize passion. Trying to monetize passion for something is very difficult. But if you know that your fan base does have a budget here, that you can, you could get into that. Absolutely. Well, look, and the market has changed. And, and this is kind of what I'm telling to founders about this stage of the market, right? We kind of went through the bull. We had the collapse. Things have moved. It's, you know, it needs to feel like you abstract away the cryptoness and the speculation. And if you can build those kind of products, you're in much better shape. But we're beginning a new bull run, right? I mean, it is, we are squarely in bull timing right now, given how much, you know, the time that we're recording this, Bitcoin is pushing 59 grand. And so it's, you know, we're in a bull market. The U.S. has too much uncertainty around tokens, but outside of the U.S., we think token-based protocols, token-based startups, raising money in the token market, I believe it's back. I think Mm -hmm. it's back, it's coming back, and it's going to come back in a big way. And we're counseling startups in the U.S., hey, start to think about how you can tap into those pools of capital. There are plenty of people that are feeling crypto rich again. It's been a while, Pete, but now it's back, man. And so I think there's opportunities, whether you're a builder outside the U.S. tapping into your home markets or the other crypto centers, or even if you're in the U.S., as long as you don't sell them to U.S. investors, you know, we think that's back. And we're seeing in this kind of run up and as things have gotten better in the in the overall market for crypto and Web3, we're seeing some pockets now where some large numbers of users are starting to congregate, right? Farcaster is starting, is went from 
couple thousand daily active with the launch of their new kind of mini apps frames program, rocketed into tens of thousands. I mean, friend tech had this little boost yeah. where it got to a hundred thousand people real quick. And, you know, we're starting to see that happening. Um, we're very bullish as well on Coinbase's new base layer two. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that Coinbase is going to be very effective at attracting uh, developers to their base layer two. We think that they know what the heck they're doing. They're putting real resources behind it. They didn't try to tokenize it for themselves to make money. They're really using it for developers. So uh, my advice to founders in this kind of current market environment is, you know, abstract away the crypto, go after real use cases and real fans, go where the funding is. If that's out right now, that's outside the US and the token markets and go where the users are. You know, if you see people active in Forecaster and you could find a way to get in there, man, jump in and give it a try. If you see base and you see Coinbase with all their resources pushing what the developers are creating, man, get in there and, and do it. If you see a token, a layer one or layer two that's getting some real momentum that has funding programs, jump in, you know, go where the users are and where yeah. the funding is, because we're in a, we're in a bull market now. And it's going to be a lot easier today than it was over the last two years. And you got to go where it's easy. Don't try to do a token-based, heavily crypto-centric, heavily speculative thing in the United States. That's crazy. Yep. Go where it's easy. <laughs> you yep. know, find the place where there's heavy tail winds as opposed to headwinds. <laughs> yep. It's a big market over here in Europe, 500 million people. Bigger than exactly. the US. And, and, and in Asia. You know, you have lots of places in Southeast Asia that have embraced this crypto that you've got pockets of places where there are large chunks of capital and big user bases that are interested in these types of products. Go where the opportunities are easy and don't, you know, drive yourself crazy banging your head into brick walls. <laughs> Find the yeah. markets that are easier. You can come to the U.S. later, right? We are going to get clarity at some point in the United States on what is and isn't a security and what can and can't be done. One way or the other, it's either going to come through the SEC's lawsuits against Binance and Coinbase or maybe in 2025, the government will take some action at the congressional level, but we're going to get an answer in the next 12 months. Yeah, it's amazing how an election gets in the way of all that, right? For sure. But, you know, these lawsuits are going to take a while. It looks like it'll be the fall yeah. before there's serious action in front of the judges. I, at best, the last stuff I read said kind of August, September timeframe, and we won't get resolution. That's just going to be like a series of motions that the judge may rule on. The two judges, there's two different cases there, but you know, we're going to get some movement in the courts and we're going to get continued clarity out of that, which is yeah. good. But, yeah. you know, go where the action is. <laughs> no, That's my it, advice. No, it's great to hear. And, and that was kind of the idea was, you know, what's changed since these last two bull runs and, and clearly seeing that and that, you know, I think one thing that stayed the same and I saw this referred to in one of your, I think, videos or articles was Cheetos and Xbox. <laughs> right. Which is that, and I'm still struggling with that, probably not so much in terms of Cheetos on this side of the pond, but definitely Xbox in that, you know, getting the kids outside and my kids are, are you know, mad into sports, but it, is that still a context in the U S is that something that we can, well, you know, to push Cheetos and Xbox was from our first product at Sportal. So we had Sportal space. Sportal space was a gym rental platform where we went to different gyms, churches and rec parks and, and, and fitness centers and said, Hey, of our first sales pitch, Pete, was so wrong. We went in, we're like, hey, would you like to rent out your gym? You can make an extra 1000 or 2000 bucks a month, and that would be great, wouldn't it? And we were routinely told over and over again, no, thanks, not really interested. And we didn't understand the customer. 
we didn't understand that the customer was generally a nice little old lady sitting at the front desk at the church or the rec park. And she just didn't care about an extra thousand or $2,000 for the church or the rec park in that way. And if she rented the gym to us, she had to make sure somebody was there to open it and lock it back up. And she had to worry about whether it was cleaned up and all this extra work that was created. And so we figured out, oh my God, we've blown it. We built a whole startup that no one wants. And we went back in and our sales strategy was the Cheetos and Xbox. We went to these nice old ladies at the gym and the church and the rec park. And we said, all these kids in your neighborhood are sitting at home with a Xbox controller in one hand and a bag of Cheetos in the other. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather them be in the gym working out and around positive adult role models? Wouldn't that be good for the kids? Can't you help out the kids? And we got nine, we went from 10 gyms to 100 with that sales pitch, the Cheetos at Xbox sales pitch. And, you know, the lesson there is two things. One, you know, generally nice old ladies are pretty happy to help out kids <laughs> and want to see them exercising and getting the benefit. But more importantly, know your customer, man. You got to know who your customer is and what's important to them and what moves the needle for them and how they're motivated. And it took us a while to iterate our way to Cheetos at Xbox, but it's been, uh, it, it, it really resonated. <laughs> no, and that, that was, it, it was great when I read that and that that is something that I'm going to bring to the next Techstars Web3 class kicking off on March 11th. Is this story I tell it to it? all of our incubator founders, you know, understand who your customer is and what motivates them, what's important to them, and then find a way to tell a story that will pull on their heartstrings. I mean, I always tell it to founders too, if they're in, you know, in a pitch competition. If you're in a pitch competition, think American Idol. I don't know how much you get that over there. I'm oh, sure yeah, you, no. You know, it was, it's called Pop Idol in this side of the pond. And it's always it. the person who gets to the end who can't sing, but their dead grandma on her dying wish said, <laughs> you've got a beautiful voice and you need to show it to the world. And that person can't sing a lick, but they end up in the final fork. You know, yep. and it's like you just got to find a way to connect with your audience and in a way that's going to be good for them yep. and really help, you know, motivate them to want to see you succeed. <laughs> exactly. It's not what you say. It's how you make them feel. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? And so that's always a big piece of advice that we share. You know, I share with founders all the time. The American Idol version and the Cheetos and Xbox. Those are the two ways that I, I talk about storytelling about your startup. Very good. And listen, Brian, we're at the point of the discussion where I'd like to ask the last question that we ask all of our guests. What's one thing that people wouldn't expect to know about you? You know, I heard that on the other ones and I gave a lot of thought and, and I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a story from early in my career. So early in my career, I was one of the three biggest traders of global, globally of U.S. government agency securities. I was like 28 years old. And I was on the trading desk at Bank of America. We traded huge size and I didn't think nothing of it, man. You know, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government agencies would issue a $5 billion bond on a, on a Tuesday morning and I would buy a billion of it. And it just didn't even occur to me that like, that was a big deal because all the people around me were trading billion dollars here, billion dollars there. I'm absolutely confident in my trading career. I've traded way more than a trillion dollars worth of debt and derivatives wow. and securities. And so I got invited out. I was, I think I was, I had just made managing director. I was like 28 years old. I was running this huge proprietary trading book that I didn't really know how big it was. And I got invited out to a Solomon Brothers conference. Now it's Citibank, but yep. Solomon Brothers was like the biggest government bond trading thing. And, and they're like, hey, we want to put you on a panel 
about agency bonds, you know, and there was this huge room, a thousand people, and I'm on a panel. And the guy to my left is the head of the Norwegian Central Bank. They had all this oil money at that point. They're running a massive government agency portfolio. And the guy on my other side was running SAFE, the Chinese Central Bank. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> what in the world am I doing up here? I, you know, these guys are like 20 years older than me. They're running central bank money. And I'm like this like little prop trader in from Chicago, five years out of school. And I was like, something's off. And I got back home and I told my boss the story. And he was out later that week with our sales guy from Goldman Sachs. And he goes, oh, yeah, Zwarner. Yeah, he's one of the three biggest traders in the world in this stuff. And my boss brought that story back to me. And I'm like, that's not good. I shut it down, man. I killed it. I'm like, if we're that point, I had no idea it was that big a part of the market. Wow. I was literally like one of the three largest buyers of agency government debt in the entire world. I'm like, that's not okay. Like, what happens if we have to get out of these positions? We, we scaled the whole thing back. But yeah, at one point in my 20s, I was one of the biggest, you know, I was right there with Fidelity, BlackRock, Vanguard, the, the governments of the world. Uh, I was one of the three biggest traders of agency debt in the entire world. Wow. I'm yeah. just imagining this picture of you kind of holding up the globe like Atlas here. That <laughs> I was like, this is so messed up. I mean, I- At the age of 28. I had no idea that I was anywhere near like that. So yeah, that was kind of my first life at, out of college. And you've come so far since then. And, so and I have and a I, lot more fun and I feel like I'm making a bigger impact with working with startups, working with founders, you know, especially here in Atlanta, working with the diverse founders that we get to work with through the We Studio. I'm having a great time with the second phase of my career and I'm very happy I found my way here. I'm with you. I'm with you 100%, Brian. And thank you so much. This has been a fantastic chat. I really enjoyed it. And looking forward to having you involved again in Techstars Web3. So thank you for being a wonderful mentor as well. Thanks, so. Pete. This has been a great conversation. And I'm excited to meet the new cohort from Techstars Web3. You had a great groups that have come through so far. And I'm excited to see what they're building. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Brian Zwerner for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. You can learn more about Brian Zwerner, We Studio, and Beyond the Game Network on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. We'll do a deeper dive into the output of this conversation in our Money Never Sleeps newsletter on Substack. So check that out on moneyneversleeps.substack.com and subscribe. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early-stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, and I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie and how to get in touch, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.